Would you take your Bibles and turn to Ephesians chapter 6? We're coming to the end of our study. We've got one more message uh, in this book after this week. And uh, I hope that it has been a very good study for you. It's one of those letters that we could go back to again and again. I got an email from a man in our church who uh, was talking about the series, and he said, you know, I don't think I know of another book that's quite as comprehensive and practical as the book of Ephesians, and that's really true. Uh, that's, that's why this letter was written. So today we're going to be looking at verses 14 to 16 uh, as we talk about the armor of God, and I'm going to read that for us as we start. Stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist, with the breastplate of righteousness in place, and with your feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. In addition to all this, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have given us everything that we need to stand in this battle against sin, against Satan and his temptations, and even against death itself. That you have won the victory, and that you have defeated all of these foes, but there is still a battle for us in this life. And we live in enemy territory, we're subject to temptation and afflictions and trials and all of those things, but you are greater still. And so Father, teach us how to use these weapons of the spirit that have been placed at our disposal and how to walk each day with you in victory. We ask it in your name, amen. During World War I, there was a very famous battle that took place that was called the Battle of Jutland. Now those of you who know your geography will know that Jutland is that Denmark Peninsula, an area that Denmark owned and also Germany held part of at that time. And there was a naval battle that took place off the coast between the British and the Germans. Now, for many years, Britain had ruled the seas. They were the dominant power. And what made this battle kind of unique was that it was only the third naval battle in history between battleships that were ironclad, that had steel sides on those ships. And Germany did not want to tackle Britain in the open seas because of their kind of military superiority in that area, but they would get into these battles that were more localized. And on this occasion, the Germans won a victory. British Admiral Lord David Beatty commanded a flotilla at the Battle of Jutland, and as the battle began, British and German ships engaged each other long range. And the heavy cruiser, the Lion, was hit by an artillery barrage and quickly sank. And next, the British ship, the Indefatigable, was hit in its powder magazine and blown to pieces. And then finally, the Queen Mary was sunk, taking a crew of 1,200 sailors straight to the bottom. There was a flaw in the design of the British ships that quickly became apparent. Though their hulls were heavily armored, their wooden decks offered almost no protection against artillery shells that came from above. It was only after the British began to armor their ships on top 
as well as on the sides that they stopped losing ships to Germany's long-range artillery. There's a point that this illustration brings out, and that is that when we enter into battle, if you leave anything unprotected, the enemy will find a way to exploit it. It will find a way to attack that chink in your armor. We come to this passage in Ephesians, and last week we read that Paul urged us to put on the full armor of God so that we would be equipped for the battles that we are going to face. We need all of it, every piece of the armor that is described here. In Ephesians 6, Paul uses the illustration of a Roman soldier to describe that armor. That's something that everybody in his world would have understand. They've seen soldiers. They've got it in their mind. They see it. It's a helpful way to remember what each of these pieces are. And most of the commentators feel that since Paul was in prison when he wrote this letter, he may have been looking at one of his guards as he wrote and thought about each piece of the armor. He describes these seven pieces of armor, if we include prayer in that list, and I think we should. Uh, Prayer wouldn't have been one of the weapons of a Roman soldier necessarily. There are six that he wore and used. But for the Christian soldier, prayer is indispensable. And so these seven together comprise the pieces of armor that we need. Each piece of the armor represents a spiritual truth. And it is that truth that we need to believe and act on if we are going to be victorious in our fight against sin and the devil. Today we're going to look at four pieces of the armor. We'll look at the last three next week. So let's start. The first thing that Paul mentions here is the belt of truth, that we are to stand firm with the belt of truth buckled about our waist. For a Roman soldier, the belt served several essential purposes, and it was the first thing that they would put on in terms of their armor. Uh, For one, it held the breastplate in place. It was attached to that breastplate. It held the scabbard, which sheathed his sword. It would also protect his loins. In fact, it was more than just a belt. It was a heavy leather apron that hung down below the belt. And when it was cinched up tight, he would tuck in his short tunic in place, and he was ready for battle. In fact, to slacken the belt was to go off duty. And you can think of soldiers who know this routine well as they are getting prepared for a battle. For the Christian, the belt represents the truth of God's Word. It is central to everything that we do. I mean, knowing the Word affects every other piece of the armor because that's where we understand it. That's where we get this information even that I am sharing with you today about these pieces of armor. It comes from the Word of God. And if we are to stand firm in battle against Satan's lies, we need to know the truth of God's Word. We need to know what Christ has done for us in salvation, who he is and what his plan is for our life and our world. 
We need to know who we are in Christ and how he has covered us with his blood. We need to understand what his will is for us specifically. We need to know how to use the word, how to apply it to life. We need to know how to look at all of life, our marriage, our family, our relationships with others, our work, through God's eyes. It's all important. In fact, all of these things that we have been covering in this letter to the Ephesians is important for us to understand if we are to be well-equipped going into the world. Now, for me, that's why one of the greatest concerns in the church today is the erosion of truth. Do you know that polls taken throughout the last 20 years have showed a continual appalling decline in the knowledge of what the Bible teaches? Now, it's still kind of amazing to me that 75% of Americans, not just Christians, but 75% of Americans say they believe the Bible is the Word of God. 77% say that America needs it today, needs to hear what the Bible has to say. Two-thirds of Americans even think it should be taught in our schools. I mean, that they think that things like the Ten Commandments are still a good thing for us to know. And so that, that's pretty amazing. That's pretty high, and you wouldn't get that from the media or the impression we get on the news. But there is this strong kind of feeling that this is God's Word. It's still important, and we need to hear it. The problem is that people don't know what it says, and they aren't reading it, and they can't tell you what the Ten Commandments are. Maybe they could get four, maybe five. They just don't know what it says. Do you know that only 19% of Christians read the Bible four days or more a week? Now, if we're to be people who are prepared for the battle, who have this belt of truth around our way, shouldn't we at least take some time to read the Word of God? every day, to think about it, to take, even if it's just taking a verse for the day that you're going to chew on or that you put up on the mirror or the dashboard or put it somewhere where you're going to see it or you talk about it as a family or you, you are praying and you're asking God to do this in your life. You see, the result of many people not knowing the Word of God is that today the faith of many Americans is syncretism. Syncretism. It's a mixture of truth and error, of Christian and non-Christian. It's all mixed together according to personal preference. George Barna has written about this in his book, Boiling Point, and he said that the filter today for most people when it comes to deciding whether something is true or not is personal preference. Does the idea feel right to me? Does it appear to offer positive outcomes for me? Does it square with my past experience? It's not does it square with what God has said in his word, but does it square with what I feel or what I like or what I think the world should be like? And the result is that before you know it, even the average born-again, baptized, church-going person has embraced elements of Buddhism, Hinduism, Judaism, Islam, Mormonism, Scientology, Unitarianism, and Christian science without any idea that they've just created their own unique faith. 
In most cases, the act of compromising biblical foundations is not done intentionally or even knowingly. As we say in our society, it just happens because they didn't know the truth. Today, also in America, two-thirds of all Americans no longer believe in absolute truth, which is kind of contradictory to saying two-thirds or three-fourths believe the Bible is the Word of God, and yet two-thirds, almost three-fourths, will say they don't believe that there is absolute truth. The only absolute is that there are no absolutes, that everything is relative. But if we had agreement that the Ten Commandments are good and valid for today, I mean, isn't what God says there absolute truth? That you shall not murder, shall not commit adultery, you shall not bear false witness like lie under oath, you should not covet whatever belongs to your neighbor. I mean, aren't those truth statements that are always to be true? I mean, that's that's the way we are to look at the Word of God, that what God says is truth. And if there is no absolute truth, then there's no basis for ethics today. There's no basis for moral values. There's no basis to really determine what is right and wrong other than whatever the will of the majority is at any given time. It is all fluid. And that's where we are today where things get decided by popular opinion in the media or in the polls, and that's why things can change very quickly. There's no objective standard to say this is right and it is always right, or this is wrong and it is always wrong. You see, in contrast to these things, it is the Word of God that gives us a solid place to stand. And those who have stood firm in the past as men and women of God have been people who said, like Martin Luther said, you know, here I stand, I can do no other. Unless somebody can convince me from the word of God and by sound reason that I should believe something different, this is where I stand. So we start with the belt of truth, girding that about our waist so that we begin to look at all of life through God's eyes. The second thing we are to put on is the breastplate of righteousness. We see that in verse 14. That breastplate protected the heart and the vital organs for a Roman soldier. It extended from the neck to the waist. Often there was a back piece that was worn as well, and most were made of bronze. Some may have had a coat of chain mail, but for most of the soldiers, it was this solid piece of metal that they wore front and back. And for the Christian, the breastplate represents righteousness. He makes that very clear here. And there are two ways that we can understand that righteousness. On the one side, we know from the scripture that when we believe in Jesus Christ, when we place our trust in him as our Savior and Lord and are born again, We are clothed with his righteousness, head to toe. That's what Paul sought. You know, in Philippians 3, he talked about his own testimony. How once he had put his whole faith in a works righteousness, trying to keep the law and be the best person he could be. But he understood from the gospel that that wasn't going to count for anything. That all our righteousness is like filthy rags. 
So he sought the righteousness of Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. That's Philippians 3.9. Theologians call this an imputed righteousness. And if you do not have it, nothing can save you. And if you do have it, you are safe for eternity. Let me say that again. If you do not have the righteousness of Christ covering you, nothing can save you. You are lost. But if you have the righteousness of Christ and you are clothed with his righteousness, you are safe for all eternity. And this righteousness cannot be earned, it can't be bought, it is a gift that is received by faith. But the result of that is that we are also to walk in righteousness. We're to live it out every single day. When we sin, we confess it. We come back to God. If we sin and we have unconfessed sin in our life or there are areas that we're just given over to Satan, we've given him a beachhead in our life, a foothold from which he can attack us in other areas as well. But when we walk with Christ, his blood covers all our sins and we walk in fellowship with him. That's why Paul in this letter has urged us to be holy, to strive to be holy. That's the way to experience victory. That's the way to experience greater joy and freedom in the Christian life. That's the way to bear fruit for Christ. It's to walk with him every single day. Is that our aim? Are we striving to be holy? Do we deal with sin quickly? confessing it, turning from it, and turning back to God. The third piece of the armor are the boots of the gospel. And we see that in verse 15. He says that we are to have our feet fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. Now this is one of the more difficult pieces to understand, and I think it's because of the way that it is written. Our feet are to be fitted with the readiness that comes from the gospel of peace. What, what does that mean? Well, let's start with a Roman soldier again. A Roman soldier wore sturdy army boots. Josephus tells us that they were thickly studded with nails. They really were probably one of the first pairs of cleats, if you will. And those shoes that they wore that were studded with these nails gave them an advantage in battle. When they were fighting in hand-to-hand -hand combat with their swords and their shields, they had a firm footing. They had solid ground on which to stand. And if their enemies didn't have that and they were slipping and sliding, you can imagine the difference. Some of you have played sports. You know what that's like. I mean, if you're playing football and your cleats aren't working and the other teams are, when that line pushes against you, you're in trouble. Those firm boots gave them a solid place to stand. They were able, with those shoes, at times to travel long distances at great speed over rough terrain. Now, for the Christian Knowing the gospel, knowing that Jesus Christ is our Savior and Lord gives us a firm place to stand. It gives us confidence in battle. So this idea of readiness means on the one side that we are sure of our salvation. And so when we're going into battle, we can take our stand with confidence that Christ is with us, he is in us, and we're going in. On the other side, 
it also means that we are to be ready to share that good news of the gospel. And I'll come to that in a little bit. When I think about the confidence that the gospel gives us when we know that we are saved, I think Paul said it well in Philippians 1.21 when he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. You know, that was a time too when he was in prison, not sure what the outcome was gonna be. He is writing these letters. He is praying for the church. And he's not sure if God's going to release him or if this is the time when he's going to be released to heaven. But his attitude was the same either way, that for me to live is Christ. If I'm here in this life every day, I'm going to live for him. If I die, then I go to be with Christ. You know, and that truth, I mean, that is so powerful when we let that sink in. I think of a woman in our church who many years ago was facing her battle with what could have been a terminal illness at that time. And she looked at that verse and she said to me as I went to see her in the hospital, she said, you know, Rick, she said, either way I win. Either way I win. If I live, I'm going to live for Christ. If I die, I go to be with Christ. Either way I win. And God spared her life and she is still with us today. But like a good soldier of Jesus Christ, knowing the gospel means that we are prepared and ready to share it at any time. 1 Peter 3.15 says that in your hearts, set apart Christ as Lord and always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. Always be ready. If someone were to ask you to tell them how they could become a Christian, would you know the answer? Would you know what to say that could point them to Jesus? Do you have a testimony that you've worked on that is clear and concise, something that you could share in just a couple minutes if you needed to, to tell someone about the change that Christ has made in your life? That's what it means to be ready with the gospel at any time, like a soldier who is ready to go into battle whenever he is called upon. And then finally, the fourth element is the shield of faith. And we see that in verse 16. When he said, in addition to all this, we are to take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Roman shields were of two types. They either had a small round shield that was worn on the forearm in battle, or they had a large oblong shield that was about four feet high and about two and a half feet wide. It was large enough to cover their entire body if they were to duck down behind it. Now, this past week when I was watching what was going on in Baltimore and I saw the riot police there with their large plexiglass shields, it's the same deal. They're about four feet tall, about two and a half feet wide. They're trying to protect themselves if rocks or other things are thrown by rioters. They're using that as a protection, and it is significant. Well, the soldiers that use this type of shield could use it both in defense and in offense. Roman soldiers would use this shield when they fought an enemy army, and they would form a deadly phalanx. They would have their spears outstretched. They would march shoulder to shoulder with these shields, and they were the terror of Rome's enemies. These shields were called scutums, and they were made of two layers of wood that were glued together in a laminate. They were covered with linen and then with hide, 
and they were bound on the top and the bottom with iron. And in the case of flaming arrows, very often the arrow would snuff itself out as it sunk into the thickness of that shield. It would extinguish these fiery darts of the enemy. After the siege of Dyrrhachium, Sceva counted 220 darts sticking into his shield. Now, I can't tell you if that was true or not. That's uh, one of those things that's been passed on through history, though. And you get the idea that this was pretty significant if after the battle you were pulling out darts or you were counting holes. A shield was a very important part of a soldier's armor, and so is our faith. It is by faith. It's by trusting in God that we extinguish the fiery darts of Satan. Now, what are some of those darts? Well, in his book, By Grace Alone, Sinclair Ferguson identifies four major fiery darts that Satan uses to unsettle believers and to rob them of their assurance and peace in the gospel. Fiery dart number one, God is against you. He's not really for you. How can you believe that he is for you when you see the things that are happening in your life? Has Satan ever used that on you? Does he ever cause you to doubt when you wrestle with, you know, why do all these difficult things keep happening? I thought being a Christian meant everything was going to go smooth. No, it doesn't mean everything's going to go smooth. It means the way of the cross, and that involves suffering and death. And so don't be surprised when difficulties come into our life because we do live in a fallen world. There is a battle raging. There is an enemy who is hurling his darts at you and don't believe his lies that God is against you. How do you counter a fiery dart like that? Well, you go to a passage like Romans 8.31 that says, if God is for us, who can be against us? And if God did not spare his own son, but sent him to die for you and me, how will he not also with him freely give us all things? If he's already given us the very best thing he could give us, will he not also take care of you in other ways as well? Fiery dart number two. I have accusations I will bring against you because of your sins. What can you say in defense? Nothing. Nothing. And I can hear Sinclair Ferguson say this with his Scottish accent, and I wish I could do it well for you, but I can hear him say, what can you say in your defense? Nothing. I mean, there is nothing that we can say. But my sins have been covered by the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that is what gives us confidence. That is what gives us the firm place to stand. You can go to Hebrews 9, how his blood has covered all of our sins once for all. Fiery dart number three. Well, you can say you are forgiven, but there's a payback coming. There's a condemnation coming for you, and you'll have to stand, and you'll have to give an account for those things. How do you answer that? Romans 8, 1. That there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set us free from the law of sin and of death. 
There is no condemnation. Your sins are forgiven by Jesus Christ and you will stand before him clothed in his righteousness. And fiery dart number four, well, given your track record, what hope is there that you will persevere to the end? Uh, He's seen us fall. He's seen us sin and stumble. What hope do we have that we will stand and make it on that day? None. None at all, if not for the grace of Jesus Christ our Lord, who says that out of all that the Father has given to me, I will lose none, but I will raise them up on the last day. John 10, 18, or John 10, 28. And Romans 8, 37 to 39, which we're going to come to in just a minute. When Satan throws his fiery darts at you, darts of doubt, and despair, doubts of temptation to sin, lies of the evil one, trials and afflictions, will you trust in Christ? Because nothing can separate you from his love. Let's take a look at Romans 8, 37 to 39. But know in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life Neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Putting on the armor of God is more than just identifying the pieces or saying, well, Rick, that was a really good message today and then going and forgetting what was said. Putting on the armor of God means that we live this out every day. To win in this battle, we need to be grounded in the truth of God's word, so we make that the habit of our life to be in the word. We need to be clothed with his righteousness, and we need to walk in righteousness. And so we walk in obedience, we walk in fellowship, we deal with sin as it comes up in our life. We need to be sure of our salvation first of all, and then ready to share that good news with others. And if we don't know how, then that's an area for growth that we can learn. And finally, we need to be people of faith who trust in God and his word at all times, and especially when the battle is raging about us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these weapons that you have given that are so powerful. Help us, Lord, to be good soldiers of Christ who wear them and use them and take them up daily whenever Satan is attacking, that we would be on alert, that we be wise in how we live and making good choices, and that we would be people who are faithfully, consistently, in your word, walking with you in the power of the Holy Spirit. We ask it in your name. Amen.